Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, this morning, give us a more clear vision of who you really are. We will hear from the text the Apostle Paul proclaim you as a merciful and gracious God. He will testify to your faithfulness in sending a son to redeem a people. And then he will tell us, Father, of this great offer of salvation to all who repent and believe. Many of these truths, Father, we have heard again and again. And oftentimes our flesh will diminish or devalue truths that are so sacred and so precious. And so I ask, Father, that you would help us not do that this morning, that we would hear of your mercy and rejoice, that we would see you clearly as a faithful God, the faithful God that you are, and we would repent. I pray, Lord, that we would hear the gospel anew this morning. For those who do not know you, that today would be a day of salvation. And for those that do, Lord, I pray it would be a day of great encouragement and power. Father, we're so thankful for the testimony that you've kept recorded in this book, these historical truths that we might fall back on again and again to bolster our faith. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit we would see you clearly. It is sufficient, Father if we see you clearly, to live as you've called us to live. So do that work in us this morning here. I pray you'd be gracious with your true churches here in the South Bay, throughout this country and throughout the world this morning to do the same thing, that you would make yourself known, that you would reveal yourself as the God that you truly are, and that your people would rightly respond. Cause us to do that right now, I pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. My beloved, we only know God because He's revealed Himself to us. You know that, right? God has made Himself known both in creation and then through His Word, Jesus Christ. And so we can gather like this and we can worship a God who has made Himself known in reality and now very personally to you by grace through faith. And so as we work our way through Paul's sermon this morning. I'm not going to top Paul's sermon. I'm not going to try to top it. I'm going to be a commentator of Paul's sermon today. But there are parts of it that I want to grab your heart. Things that we hear again and again and often say, well, of course I know that. Well, of course you know that. If you're a mature believer, you likely do. But have it rightly grab you and turn you and compel you to follow Christ faithfully. All right? So last week, if you remember, we, we kicked off the mission to the Gentiles. We, we saw the church in Antioch submit to the Holy Spirit and send out Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark on the first official church-sanctioned missionary journey. And they make their way to Cyprus, and we saw them make their way all the way across the island, sharing the gospel as they went. And they ended up on the west side of the island in a city called Paphos. And there they shared the gospel with Sergius. He was the proconsul. And of course, we saw Bar-Jesus trying to make a mess of that. He didn't win. God won. Sergius came to a saving grace. 
And so the mission work, the, the first part of the mission work for uh, their first missionary journey was complete on the island. And then we're told this, look at verse 13, that Paul and his companions, you see now who's going to kind of take center stage in this, it will be Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they, they leave Paphos on the west side of the island of Cyprus, and they sail, they sail north to modern-day Turkey. Then they make their way up the Kestros River, about 25 miles inland to this city. We're going to come back to this, to the city of Perga. And then Luke tells us that in Perga, verse 13, John Mark left them and he returned to Jerusalem. Now you can read books and books and books and lots of commentaries on why did John Mark leave. Um, We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Fear, jealousy, some say he had malaria and he go back. Some say he was struggling with the gospel of grace and he really was more in line with the law of Moses. I don't believe that to be true. Whatever the reason was for his departure, it actually causes a falling out between Paul and Barnabas, which we're going to see in Acts 15. And so that's one of the reasons it's noted here. We're going to come back to it again in a couple chapters. So without John Mark at their side, Paul and Barnabas, they press on. They travel from Perga up to Antioch in Pisidian or it's most commonly called Pisidian Antioch. That's another 100 miles north. Now remember, they're traveling on foot, and they have to go over the, the, uh, the Taurus mountain range. And to get there, to get to the, um, the city of Pisidian Antioch, which was about 3,600 feet above sea level, they had to climb these mountainous roads that were constantly flooding. Um, it was a very desolate place, filled with bandits, so super dangerous. Um, and that's why most people think that's why John Mark left. He said, this is, this is not a good endeavor. I'm going back home. Um, they get there. They get to Pisidian Antioch. It was the leading city in the southern part of the Galatian province at that time. It was a colonial city, which means it had its own local autonomy. They had self-rule, and they didn't pay imperial taxes. So a lot of people flocked there. And most of the historians talk about it being a city with a very, very large Jewish population. I think it was one of the reasons that we get that emphasis here um, in the book of Acts. And so as was customary, and you'll see this throughout the remainder of the book, Paul uh, goes to the synagogue, right? That makes sense. That's the right place to start. We're going to preach the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. Um, look at the latter part of verse 15. They're in the service. Now, this was common in a synagogue service for the, the rabbi in charge of the service to offer an opportunity for someone to speak a word of encouragement And so he says in verse 15, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, I I got a word of encouragement. Oh, do I have a word of encouragement. Now they have no idea he's going to be preaching the gospel. They have no idea. Usually it was some comment on what was read or what was taught. And so Paul begins here with the history of Israel and he traces the promises, and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's actually a very short sermon, probably a little bit longer. I would imagine it was longer in the actual proclamation of it, but what we have here is relatively short and really, really simple. What Paul does is he magnifies God in his mercy and his faithfulness, and then he calls people to repent and follow Jesus. Um, And so there, there are three key aspects of this sermon that I want you to hear, Paul's sermon that I want you to hear, And then I want us as a church to say, oh, I want to preach the gospel like that too, right? 
This will be a very didactic teaching in that I want you to, as you listen, think, do I do that? When I proclaim the gospel, do I magnify the mercy of God? Do I talk about God's faithfulness in Christ? And do I call people to repent? And do I warn them if they do not? I want you to evaluate your own ability to share this profound truth, the word of encouragement that you have for all those in your mission field who do not know Christ. Oftentimes, we give partial gospels, right? We'll talk about the love of God and not the holiness of God. Or some of us, we like talking about the wrath of God, and we talk about sin and hell and damnation, and we don't talk about his mercy and his faithfulness. Well, we want a full-orbed gospel. Paul gives us that here, and so I want to encourage us to strive to include these things. Number one, the mercy of God. When you preach the gospel, preach the mercy of God. Number two, the faithfulness of God. And number three, the offer of God. The offer of God, which is salvation by grace through his son. The theme of the sermon is simple. It's declaring the full gospel for the salvation of souls. Declare the full gospel for the salvation of souls in your life. All right, you ready? Number one, the mercy of God. So Paul speaking to his brothers. They're Jews. They're Hellenistic Jews living in Antioch and Pisidia. And he's speaking to God-fearers. Those are people who had yet to become. They weren't... They weren't proselytes. They hadn't become Jews yet, but they were worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And they knew God's plan, right? These were the people of Scripture. And so they knew God's plan from the very beginning. When he created man in his image, imago dei, in, as males and females, as the pinnacle of his creation, you were created to be in a relationship with the living God. You were created Greater than the moon, greater than the sun, greater than the stars, greater than the galaxies, greater than the entire universe combined. You were created as the pinnacle of creation to be in a loving relationship with God, to receive his glory and reflect that glory back and then be in an intimate relationship with him, God being our God, we being his people for how long? Forever. Well, that's the plan. That's the plot line. That was the story from the very beginning. And the Jews believed that. They believed the Torah. They believed Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so Paul starts with this plan. And he makes it very clear to them that this was God's plan for the beginning. But we know in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They bring sin into the world because they want to what? They want to be like God. They don't want to submit to God. And as a result, all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, is plunged into a state of disarray and lawlessness, where death and unrighteousness rather than life and righteousness reign. John Piper talked about it like this. Listen, he said, the moment man fell into sin was the moment when childlike dependence on the heavenly father began to seem distasteful, uncomfortable, and unfulfilling. And the fall was complete when the desire of man to rule his own life and promote his own glory, became so strong that he scorned the wisdom and power and love of God by rejecting God's provision of an abundant life, that plan from the beginning. And with Adam fell the whole human race. Genesis chapter 3. But even after man rejects God, God fully intends to fulfill his plan. We reject him but ultimately, he will not reject us. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, moments after Adam and Eve turn away and sin from God, God promises to send a redeemer. Genesis chapter 3, we're only three chapters into the entire book. And God says, oh, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send a savior to make things right. 
I'm going to bring a, send a savior to get my storyline, my plot line, where I will be your God and you'll be my people back on the page. Now, the Jewish people of Paul's day, they believed the promises of God. They believed that God was real and that God was good. And that if he promised to redeem a people for his namesake, he was going to do it. They believed that he was going to bring peace, shalom, harmony between God and man and man to man. They fully believed this. And so Paul begins to trace this. They said, listen, going all the way back to Abraham, those promises to make for his namesake a holy people, he will fulfill. And so Paul picks up for us here, he says, Jewish brothers and God fears, he picks up on the mercy, the infinite mercy and loving kindness of this God revealed to us in human history. And he does a very brief sketch, and it's a brief sketch, and he's not doing it historically because they don't know their own history. They do know their own history. What he reveals to us here, and I'm going to show you really quickly, is God's interaction with his people as a merciful, loving God. Why? Because that's who he is. And so Paul says, I'm going to show you the character of God, and I want you to be amazed. So I'm going to show you the character of God, and I want you to be amazed. Okay? The verbs here are extraordinary. Look with me. Verse 17, it says that God chose he chose them, he elected them, the patriarchs. We know this from the New Testament before anything ever was. And he chose them not because they were deserving. Quite the contrary, they were all pagan worshipers. He chose them for his own glory so they might know his loving kindness. In verse 17 it says that God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. They were slaves, and that word great literally means to exalt. So he exalts them. Continues on in verse 17, he led them out of slavery by the power of his mighty hand. Verse 18, he put up with them. Now that's, I don't know what your translation might say. Um, there are different ways to translate that. It doesn't mean that he like, had to bear with them. It means he provided for them even when they were rebellious. He loved them even when they were being bad. Uh, verse 19, he fought their battles by destroying their enemies. And then we're told in verse 19 that he gave them freely the promised land. That was the land promised to Abraham. And then in verse 20, once in the land, he gave them judges as saviors and rulers. And then once they wanted a king, he gave them King Saul. In other words, Paul is not trying to give them a history lesson here. He's, he knows they know it. Paul is emphasizing the radical mercy of God from the very beginning. He says this, he chose you, he exalted you, he freed you, he put up with you, he protected you, he gave you a land, he gave you a judge, he gave you a savior, he gave you a king. What kind of God does that? What, what kind of God does that amongst people who are constantly rebelling? He didn't do it because they had earned his love. He didn't do it because they were obedient to his love. If you know the Old Testament at all, if you know the Old Testament at all, it's a constant code towards God, move away from God, God redeems them, brings them back, and then they sin again. The entire book of Judges. He does it for his own glory, that they might be his people that he might be their God, dwelling with them forever and ever. Why? Because that's the plot line. That's the story. That's the narrative. He slows down a little bit when we get to verse 22 with David because he really needs them to get this. And David's highlighted in this sermon. He introduces him here and then he closes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. And when, he, when God now, Paul is now speaking of God when he had removed him, Saul, as king, he raised up David to be their king, 
of whom he testified and said, look at verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, it's not by chance that Luke uses the word God raised up David. He's going to be pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he raises his son from the dead to make him what? A savior king who rules for how long? Forever and ever, right? It will be Christ that fulfills the promise made to King David. If you remember, Nathan was speaking to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and here's the promise from God to David, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall build a house for my name. And you think, well, that must have been Solomon. He built the temple. Yes, but not quite. Who would build a house for his name? Jesus Christ would build that house. What is that house? It's the church. It's us. He said, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever, God said. And so Paul's saying, listen, you know the, the, the Messiah you've been waiting for? You know the Davidic king and savior you've been waiting for for centuries? Oh, by the way, he's already come. He's already died. He's already been risen. He's already seated upon the throne. It's Jesus Christ. And he says, well, that's, you don't believe me on that. I'm going to talk about John the Baptist. He says, the last Old Testament prophet testifies to this very thing. He quotes John specifically. Look at the latter part of verse 25. John, by the way, John the Baptist was very well known, very likely known even in Antioch of Pisidia. Um, Jesus said of John the Baptist that he was the most righteous man to have ever lived, right? No greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. But many thought that John was the Messiah. And John says very clearly, I am not he, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So John says, oh, I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not the Messiah, but the, when the Messiah comes, this Messiah is so good and so glorious and so powerful, I'm not worthy to bend down and undo the strap of his filthy sandal. So this is God's unfailing mercy and infinite love for his people. That's always been true because that's who God is. Starting all the way back in Genesis 3 and then moving through the centuries, Paul is saying the culmination of our understanding of this real God is that he is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. This, my beloved, must be, if it is not already, then incorporated, starting today, part of your gospel testimony. We talk about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the need to repent and believe, and that's all true. But do you spend time on the mercy of God? Do you magnify and teach to and reveal his loving kindness for centuries to a rebellious people? If it is not, make it so today. God has revealed himself to be merciful for centuries. In other words, he, he really is that father in the parable of the prodigal son. You all know that. He is that father. Remember the youngest son says, Dad, I want my inheritance, and he takes all of his money and he goes away and he squanders it on illicit living. And then he realizes, he comes to his son, he says, I, I gotta go back home. I'll go back home and I'll serve my father as a slave or a servant. Why am I here? And in Luke chapter 15, it says that the young son, he arose and he came to his father. And this is what we're told. Now I want you to picture God the Father with sinful man. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was looking for him. And he felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. The son didn't say a word. 
He didn't say, I'm sorry, Dad. I sinned against you, Dad. Please take me in as a slave. He didn't even get a chance to speak. And the Father is smothering him with hugs and kisses and compassion. Why? That's who God is. That's who God is. I don't know what your vision of God is in your life, beloved. But if you think, oh, God doesn't love me because I had a bad day today, you have no idea who this God is. God is infinitely compassionate. He is eager to receive us and pour out his mercy because he's a merciful God. That's who he is. If you know Christ, then you know that. You know he's been merciful with you. If you know Christ, you know how merciful he has been with you. Even this day, you know what your sins are, what they, are, what they rightly deserve, and he has not given that to you in Christ. And that means if God is truly this merciful, we can believe Paul when he said in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We can believe that because he's a merciful God. We can believe Peter when he said in 2 Peter 3.9, God does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. We can believe that because God is a merciful God. Those are glorious verses, my beloved, and great hope for you and for your family and friends, especially those who do not know Christ. So God's merciful character, Paul said, it's been on display from the very beginning. This is not a philosophical argument. We're not asking whether or not God, if he exists, can be a merciful God. Paul's saying this is what the historical record teaches. We know this because God has made it known. So number one, make God's mercy fundamental to your gospel message. Number two, the faithfulness of God must be there as well. So after after Paul establishes God's mercy and loving kindness, he says, now let me talk to you about how faithful this God truly is. Faithful to do what? To keep his promises. If you read through the Old Testament, God makes a lot of promises, some really big promises. Right To Abraham, he says, from you, your descendants are going to cover the earth, and I'm going to bring from you a people, a holy people for my name, and I'm also going to bring a savior king who will reign upon the throne forever. And Paul's saying that this God keeps his promises. Look at verse 26. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, these are the God-fears. He says, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. What's the message of salvation? Well, it's forgiveness of sin. It's sin which keeps us separated from God. It is the, the giving of God's righteousness to us freely in Christ. It is being identified as a son or daughter of the king. And it's being brought into his kingdom, right? The, the full orb salvation, this salvific message, Paul's saying, I'm gonna give it to you. And by the way, you must listen very closely because the message of salvation is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Take out Christ, and there is no message of hope. Take out the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Paul has no word of encouragement, none. So he begins by explaining. He says, let me take you back to Jerusalem back around 30, 31, 32 AD, when the leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of our faith, missed the Messiah. Right? He says, you know, the, during the uh, Sabbath worship, they would hear prophecies about God sending the, the Savior, the, the Davidic king. So they heard it Sunday after Saturday after Saturday, and Paul says they missed it. Look at verse 27. When he, Jesus, came, verse 27, they did not recognize him. Recognize who? The Davidic king, the promised savior. They missed him. And instead of receiving him as the son of David, the savior king, 
and rightly worshiping him as they should, we're told they condemn him. And in verse 28, they ask Pilate to have him crucified. And so Pilate does. Pilate exercises the will of the people in order for his own political gain, and he has the Son of God crucified. Now, we see this move through, and we think, well, how could this be happening? How can the Son of God come to redeem man, and then man treat him like this? Well, this is how it was supposed to go. This was the storyline also. Prophesied 700 years prior, Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of his own death, he was what? Pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are what? We are healed. We are healed. This was all part of God's plan. And so God's son, although perfect and sinless, submitted himself to crucifixion on a Roman cross, and he, listen, he died. He died physically, and he died spiritually upon that cross, taking on the full wrath of God. And once he was declared dead, two Jews, you know them, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they take his body and they place him in a tomb in fulfillment of the scriptures, and then you know what happens. I mean, you've been to an Easter Resurrection Sunday service. What happens? On the third day, he rises from the dead. Look at verse 29. They took him down from the tree, and they laid him in the tomb. This is all part of God's plan. Verse 30, you like but God verses? If you like them, this is the one. Stick it in your pocket. But God raised him from the dead. Who? The son of David, the promised king, the one who would come and make things right. He raised him from the dead. Now, you hear that and you say, well, of course, I believe that. No, that's a really big deal. He died and he was risen. So big, you say, well, how big? Well, it changes all of human history, right? Because now a resurrected Savior is available to us, sinners deserving of eternal judgment. You should take verse 30 and sit on it for 10 hours in prayer. It's so big. In fact, I was tempted to do the entire sermon on that one verse, but you would not like me for that. The death and, resurre- death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key essential element to the gospel, and that's why Paul spends so much time on it. I mean, how, my beloved, how are these Jews to know that this really was the son of David? These are very serious Religious people, they believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in heaven, they believed in hell. How are they to trust Paul and Barnabas, who they didn't even know? How are they to trust them that this Jesus Christ was in fact the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, the Savior King? They understood something that we take so lightly. They understood, they get this wrong, they get it wrong for eternity. I mean, this is a cataclysmic mistake. You miss the Messiah, you follow the wrong king, and you follow them all the way into eternal damnation. So they, they needed a little more proof than Paul just saying it, right? Many had come before Jesus. Many would come after Jesus declaring the exact same thing. So why should they believe that Jesus was in fact the Messiah? The same reason you should believe. He didn't stay dead. He did not stay dead. All the forces of evil, Satan, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish people, God the Father himself put Christ to death. But he rose. Why? Because he is the Messiah. He is God's son. He's the Savior King, which means he can't stay dead if the plan was for him was for to reign on the throne. Acts chapter 2, 24, I hope you remember this. 
God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, Jesus Christ. So Paul explains that hundreds of people bore witness to this during the 40 days of his um, resurrection teachings. Look at verse 32. Paul says, And we bring you the good news that, w- that God promised and was testified to by all these people. And that, that good news is that he actually was going to send a Savior to make a people for his own namesake. And then he says in verse 33, This, Paul says, God has fulfilled to us their children, that's the children of the patriarchs, by what? By raising Jesus. Do you see the emphasis? I mean, Paul, Paul's hanging his entire evangelical hat on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the ironclad, indisputable, irrefutable proof that he is, in fact, the son of David, the Savior King who came to save mankind. Indisputable that this carpenter from Nazareth was, in fact, the Savior King of the world. And so Paul says, listen, history has testified to this. We have eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses. And then he says, if you don't believe that, I'm going to go to prophecy. They're Jews, so he's going to take their scriptures and he says, let me show you this. Look at verse 33. He said, it is written in the second Psalm, so this is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And we don't, we don't think of that in terms of the son being eternally begotten from the father, which he was from eternity past. He's talking here about he was begotten, he became the exalted savior king who would sit at his right hand who would receive all the power and authority that had been promised to David. In other words, my beloved, Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead. I mean, that's, that's a glorious thing to celebrate, and it was glor- it's glorious for us to celebrate that on uh, Resurrection Sunday. He was raised and exalted. He was raised from the dead, and then God brought him up to sit in the position of power above the heavens and the earth, that he has all power over the heavens and the earth. So he has the title because he is king of kings and lord of lords. That it is t- that's his title because that is real. And that means, my beloved, that's such great news for us. That means as a king, he has the power to do what? To forgive sinners like us. He has the power to call us and bring us into his kingdom. It's his kingdom. And so he can bring us into it. This was the promise. Look at verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. So he quotes here now, Isaiah 53, verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. What was the holy and sure blessing promised to David? An eternal throne, a forever and ever throne. That was given to Christ, the son of David. And then his final quotation comes from Psalm 16. Look at verse 35. And he talks about the promise that was made to David that David's body would never see corruption. But the promise wasn't just for David. Ultimately, David's body would be raised from the dead just like yours will be, praise God, right? But he's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the son of David. Look at verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So you see the play on words? He raised up David, yes, to be a king over Israel during his generation, but then he raises up Jesus Christ. 
to be the king of kings and lord of lords whose body will what? Never see corruption ever. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead as you believe on the third day because that is true. It's true. Only the one God raises from the dead can escape corruption from the temporal body. And so Paul comes full circle here. He's kind of stopped with David when doing the history. Now he comes back full circle here and he says, by the way, David is not seated upon the throne. It's Jesus. Jesus, not David, ascended the eternal throne. Jesus, not David, received all power and glory from God. Jesus, not David, has the power to forgive sinners. Real clear distinction. So Paul is unashamedly, my beloved, taking the message of salvation and he's focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, we have eyewitnesses, hundreds. And at that point in time, they could have called them in a court of law. They could have packed the court. He says, history is on our side. Prophecy He says, your Old Testament scriptures are on our side. Now for the Apostle Paul, he saw the resurrected, glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. He could even say, and I can tell you something personally. He doesn't appeal to it, and that's good. It's not subjective, it's objective. These are all real things that really happen in space and time. But he also does it theologically. Because Paul understands something that I know you do too. That apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this is a magnificent waste of time. This right here. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then you ought not be sitting here on a Sunday morning because apart from Christ being raised, you have no hope. Paul says this later in 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But, he says in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. My beloved, Paul is not ashamed of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He realizes that our hope hangs upon it. There was a study done in 2017 in the United Kingdom. They were asking professing Christians whether or not they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 25% said no. And then the article was, can you be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Categorical answer, absolutely 100% no. You cannot be a Christian and believe that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. Our entire faith, as Paul said, hangs upon this historical objective truth. We believe that the Son of Man came to die for our sins. We believe that he lived the sinless life that we were supposed to live but did not, and that he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die but don't have to because of his sacrifice. We believe that he rose from the dead on the third day in fulfillment of scriptures. We believe that he, what, is seated at the right hand of God. We believe he will come again in glory. We believe he will judge the living dead. We believe all these things by faith because they are true. We believe by faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ paying for our sins. We believe by faith that God actually received Jesus' sacrifice and that will grant to us forgiveness and righteousness in his place. We believe by faith that God will call us sons and daughters in his kingdom. That he will be, remember the original plan, that he will be our God and that we'll be his people forever and ever. We believe that by faith and God has proven that throughout human history. My beloved, faith in a dead man is not good. 
Faith in a man who stays dead? Well, that's the foundation of every single major religion other than Christianity, right? Buddha, dead. Confucius, dead. Muhammad, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. Charles Taze Russell, dead. Baha'u'llah, dead. Gandhi, dead. Karl Marx, dead. L. Ron Hubbard, dead. Sun Moon, dead. Jesus Christ, alive. Jesus Christ alive. Jesus Christ reigning. Jesus Christ offering real hope to real people like us who need to be saved. Our message of encouragement, the gospel of grace that we bring to the lost, must have God's faithfulness in it too. Even though God did not cause the fall, he promised that he would not allow that to be the end of the story. He promised to find a way to overcome the stranglehold of sin and death on mankind, and that was by sending his son to the cross to die that we might live. That was the only solution to buy back a rebellious people, Christ giving his life for sinners like us. God, my beloved, is faithful. He's called you, has he not? He has sustained you in Christ if you still believe this day All right, merciful God, faithful God. I got one more. Those two need to be in your gospel testimony, the offer of God. If if you're talking to a friend or family member who does not know Jesus Christ and you talk about God's mercy and God's faithfulness, that's all good. But if you don't do this last part, if you don't bring this teaching, this offer, this call to repentance, then you're gonna fall short. You're gonna fall short because there's always a response to the gospel. There's always a response to it. We are to call people to repentance and faith. God commands it, and we are to call. Look at verse 38. Paul said, let it be known to you. All right, so, I mean, we hear that. The English translation's not great. What Paul's saying, he's saying, listen, I've testified to the truth of who God is, what God has done, And now he says you are responsible to do something with this truth. Let it be known to you. You have a responsibility to respond to this. My beloved, you can share the best gospel testimony, a full-orbed gospel, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, a call to repentance, even the warning that we'll look at, but you cannot make someone believe. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Verse 38. I love that. He says, brothers, it's a term of endearment. He loves them. That through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is what? Proclaimed to you. You just heard it. Now this is going to be, for his audience, we hear that and we say, well, of course, pastor. His audience, it's a full stop, jaw-dropping, take your breath away moment. Because he just turned the entire old covenant upside down in what they were hearing. These were faithful Jews and God-fears, those pursuing Yahweh. For them, the forgiveness of sins was intertwined, inexplicably intertwined in the Old Covenant. In other words, forgiveness of sins could not be accomplished by another man, mediated by a priest maybe, but it had to come from the good Jew. The good Jew did what? The good Jew obeyed the commandments. They offered the sacrifices. They attended the holy days. They prayed. They fasted. They gave to the poor. But here Paul says forgiveness of sins comes through this man, this crucified 
risen, exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. Not through you. Not by your own efforts. Not by how much you pray or you give or you sacrifice. Now, my beloved, if forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus Christ, if he really is the mediator of this faith that saves, then you have to ask the question, then is everybody saved? Is Christ the mediator universally? Or is there some personal application that must take place? If Christ died for the sins of mankind, then is mankind all saved? Look at verse 39. Paul says, and by him, by this one man, speaking of Christ, by him, everyone, what? Who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. It was sin that perverted the storyline. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, ruining God's relationship with those made in his image. And therefore, it must be sin that is dealt with. You must be set free from sin. And I'm not talking about just the consequences, which is judgment and eternal damnation. I'm talking about the desire to sin in your own heart. That must be dealt with. It's our sinful hearts that bind us, and therefore our sinful hearts must be set free. The laws of Moses, Paul says, although good and a gift from God, Right, telling Israel for centuries how to live as God, God's people, how to relate to one another and to the nations. He said it was never, ever, ever intended to set you free from your sin. Never. Hebrews chapter 10, the law can never by the sacrifices that are offered every year make perfect those who draw near. You remember this, don't you? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, listen, this is Jesus' words, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. What was the Father's will? For the beautiful, precious body of Jesus Christ to ascend that cross in our place that he might receive, the scriptures say, in his flesh, the full wrath, the due punishment that we sinners rightly deserve before a thrice holy God. And he did this, he did this to set us free. He did this to set us free from the bondage of sin. When you're bound, you know what that's like. Bound to a life of dissatisfaction, regardless of how much you consume. Right? You keep putting it in. You keep taking it in, and yet you find yourself dissatisfied. When you're bound to a, a life of self-glory, no matter how much money you make, how many jobs you get, or how many degrees you hang on your wall, still not satisfied, bound by selfish desires that even when satisfied, you immediately want something else. Bound by broken relationships, bound by a troubled conscience, and ultimately bound to judgment and eternal damnation. That's what Christ came to set us free from. But if this freedom cannot be accomplished through the law of Moses, by being a good Jew or for you being a good Christian, then how do we get it? How do you get it? Look at verse 39. It is received what? By faith. Everyone who believes. Everyone who puts their trust in the mercy of God receives forgiveness of sin and is set free. Everyone who believes in the faithfulness of God to forgive us of our sins because of the work of Christ is set free. Everyone who believes. You say, well, it's got to be harder than that. Praise God, it's not for us. 
It was hard for Christ, but it's not hard for us. You are saved by God's grace through simple, childlike faith, trusting in the goodness of God. The 19th century German preacher Karl Gerach, he wrote this. He was a preacher and a poet, so I'm stealing it. I quoted it. All right, I'm telling you who said it. I'm not taking claim for it. The way to salvation so slowly and with such difficulty prepared for us, slowly through the time of preparation in the Old Covenant, with difficulty through the bitter suffering and death of Jesus, and yet so short and so pleasant for us to travel, short for all that we need is to embrace the cross of Christ by faith, pleasant, for here we find remission of sins, life, and salvation. As a faithful evangelical, you are to call your hearers to repentance and faith. Talk about the mercies of God. Talk about the faithfulness of God. And then call them in love to repent of their sins, to turn to Christ, and to be, say that they might have remission of sins and life and salvation. This is the part we often leave out. I, I don't know if we do it because it seems too personal when I, now I'm going to tell you to respond to it or call you to respond to it. Maybe we're afraid of offending. Maybe we think it's unnecessary. You know, as Reformed people, we think, well, I proclaim the gospel. Now they can do what they're going to do with it. Maybe. I pray not. You're not just supposed to state the facts. You're supposed to call people to Repentance. To leave out a call to repentance, to not call a lost friend or family member or coworker to repent and believe in Christ after you've told them about the mercies of God and his faithfulness in Jesus is not only to cut the gospel short, but I would argue shows a real lack of love for that lost soul. A real lack of love. Because you know, you know what awaits them apart from Jesus as Lord and Savior. They may not know it, you do. Paul is not concerned about how well he's going to be received in the synagogue of Antioch and Pisidian. He's not concerned about that. He's not concerned how many likes he's going to get after he leaves that place. He's concerned about their souls. Look at verse 40. So he, this great gospel testimony, the mercies of God, the faithfulness of God, established in history, established through prophecy, the call to repentance, the call to salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says, beware, watch out, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Verse 41, look you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you think, oh, I've heard that. That's from the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a 7th century prophet and he was prophesying here to the destruction of Judah. Israel, the 10 tribes of the north, they had already fallen to the Assyrian onslaught as a result of their rebellion against God. And so Habakkuk is sitting in between the destruction of Israel and the soon-to-come destruction of Judah. He's prophesying to the fact that the Babylonians in a matter of decades would come and absolutely level Jerusalem. No more Jerusalem. No more people of God in Jerusalem. No more temple. Complete and utter destruction. Paul's warning here, he's quoting Habakkuk, and they know. 
He did not need to explain to them what he was saying. Those who heard the message of the gospel from Paul's lips and refused to repent and refused to believe and refused to confess their sins and find salvation in this resurrected man, verse 41, God would do a work in their days, a work that they would not believe even if one tells it to you. What was that work? It was judgment. It was judgment. 25 years from this particular sermon of Paul's Jerusalem and the temple are going to be gone. If you had told the Jew in Antioch of Pisidia that was going to happen, most would not have believed it. How could that happen? It's God's city. It's God's people. It's God's temple. He won't let that happen. And yet it did. Yet it did. But Jerusalem and the temple being completely destroyed is not what Paul was alluding to directly. Paul was talking about eternal destruction of the soul. He was talking about people rejecting repentance and faith in Christ and being destroyed forever. So they had heard Paul's word of encouragement, of God's infinite mercy. They had heard of God being faithful to keep his promises to Jew now and to Gentile by sending the Son to the cross to die for our sins. So to reject God's mercy. My beloved, God took all of his wrath and he put it upon his Son so you wouldn't have to receive it. That was the act of mercy, that Christ took that for you. To deny that mercy after you know it, well, it is the cosmic offense. Right? There is no There is no greater sin than you hearing of the mercy of God, wrath poured out on Christ, and you saying, I will not be saved. No greater sin than to deny the mercy of God in Christ. My beloved, if you were were dying in need of a kidney transplant, and your best friend found out that they have a perfect match for you, and they went to your doctors and had their kidney removed to give to you, and then you said that you would not take it even though you knew it would save your life, I don't think your friendship would be all that solid after he gave up or she gave up a kidney. If as parents you sold your house and liquidated all your savings to put your son through a trial of a crime he actually committed, his legal defense fund, and you paid for all of it in such a way that the court actually found mercy on your son and did not send him to jail, if afterwards he returned to a life of crime and renounced you as a parent, I think it would change your relationship, maybe permanently. My beloved, this is one of the hardest parts of the work of the evangelist. It's telling people that if they refuse the mercy of God, that all that waits for them is judgment. If they refuse God in Christ, only judgment awaits on that day. A judgment so severe, look at verse 41 again, it's so severe that that words cannot adequately express how bad it is. Verse 41, you would not believe it even if someone told it to you. That's how bad, but we must try. We must try. We must, in sharing the full gospel, not only call people to repentance and faith, we must warn them of the consequences if they do not. If they come before God with just their good works, just submitting to the laws of Moses, just doing the things that they think will please God and allow them to be let in, if they come with only their works and not a crucified, risen, exalted Savior, there is no hope. There is no hope for them. This wrath, my beloved, is so unbearable. Listen, but even Jesus Christ, in the night that he was betrayed, when he prayed in the garden, this is, this is Jesus 
truly God, truly man. He's so overwhelmed with the prospect of God pouring out his wrath that he experiences the equivalent of an eternal damnation forever. He's so overwhelmed. What does he ask God? Is there another way, Lord? Is there any other way that we can bring your plan back into place where we can redeem mankind and you can be their God and they can be your people? Is there another way? That's how overwhelmed he was. The scriptures actually teach and some argue that he was actually sweating, physically sweating blood. It was that traumatic to his soul. And God said, there's no other way. The only way that even a single soul can be redeemed and brought back into a right relationship with me is if you die and Christ said, then I will die. Then I will die. My beloved, if God's wrath struck unspeakable fear into the heart of the God-man, Jesus Christ, how much more should it strike fear into all those who spurn the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God? How much more? Infinitely so, those who refused to be saved after such a sacrifice was made. We want to be good communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ on mission. Right? We're on mission. Paul shows us here. Reveal the objective, historical mercy of God. Reveal it to people. Tell people that God truly does desire for all to be saved. Reveal the faithfulness of God that he made a promise to redeem a people for himself and then he fulfilled that promise by sending the Christ to die for our sins. Tell them about that and then call them to repentance and faith. Call them lovingly. Call them gently. But please call them. You know what awaits if they do not respond. And be gracious and love them well by telling them what will happen if they do not repent. Tell them the truth, my beloved. Tell them that when they die and they take that last breath, they will come before God without a Savior and they will be judged for eternity. I want to encourage you not to be ashamed of the gospel. Do not remain silent. Do not give a partial gospel. Paul said, as you heard already read, it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. That's the word of encouragement, my beloved. I want you to take from this message today to those who do not know Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us a people not ashamed of the gospel, but loving the very fact that you, an infinitely holy God, would be so merciful and so gracious and so faithful to send Christ to die for a people like us. Father, I I ask that you would um, equip us as a church to share the gospel faithfully, that we would share the full gospel, that we would, oh, Father, we would spend time talking about how merciful and loving you are, because you are. You've made that known, that we would talk about your faithfulness and keeping your plan, Father, which is to be our God and to redeem a people for your name's sake, that we would tell people how you sent your son, Christ, to pay for our sins. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who would lovingly call people to repentance and faith. Knowing full well we cannot save anyone, Father, but we are the messengers, we are the witnesses, we are to speak the truth in love. So cause us to do that, Father. Bring to mind at this moment our family members, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, our neighbors, next door neighbors, maybe we've known for years, people we've worked with in the office, those who do not know Christ, who are relying upon their own works and their own righteousness, put them upon our hearts and minds right now, Father, 
that we might bring this full gospel to them. And then if you'd be gracious, Father, to save them with the testimony that comes from our lips. You do a great work here in Antioch through the proclamation of the gospel from Paul. I pray you do that same thing here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church as we faithfully proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would, through us, save the multitudes. Save our family, save our friends, save our neighbors, save this community, Father, for your name's sake. I pray you would do this, Father, and you give us great encouragement knowing that there is power in this gospel. Most of all, Lord, I pray you would do it for your glory. That's why you created us in the beginning, in your image, to know and worship you forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.